the predominant form of treatment would work for about 54% of patients versus 40% for SSRIs. By using at-home ketamine therapy and combining it into the psychedelic therapy modality, we have gotten people a clinically significant response rate 63% of the time. So that's 40% wow. more frequently than SSRIs, but it also works immediately versus six to eight weeks for a given SSRI and 10x fewer patients have side effects from ketamine therapy than they do from SSRIs. It's not boring. This story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that shadow on It's not boring. Not boring is for the optimist. Take a little shot of optimism. Take a little shot of optimism. Let's just zoom out and take a little shot of optimism. Dylan, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Thanks, Packy. Super fired up to jam with you. So tell me what you do. Mindbloom's mission is to transform lives today, to transform the world tomorrow through psychedelic medicine. What does that mean? What does Mindbloom do? Mindbloom is the nation's largest provider of psychedelic therapy. We do at-home ketamine therapy for people with anxiety and depression. We've done over 250,000 psychedelic therapy sessions since launching in 2019. And there are two big things that we have aimed to accomplish and have made a lot of progress in. One is we've radically increased access to psychedelic therapy, starting with ketamine therapy by creating a telemedicine model that has driven the cost of treatment down 80% from the average in-person provider when I started the company, as well as bringing treatment to many Americans who didn't previously have access to an in-person clinic. About 160 million Americans don't have access to in-person behavioral health care. And so we're in 38 states, reaching about 90% of Americans today. Uh, and the second is we've built a comprehensive solution that just starts with ketamine, the medicine, in order to get people better outcomes, or we call ket ketamine therapy 2.0. So this combines the ketamine along with specialized coaching from psychedelic guides, along with a lot of different therapeutic content and programs for different mental health care issues like grief, alcohol use disorder, anxiety, depression, to help people prepare for get the most out of and integrate their experiences. And as a result, just last summer, we published, along with researchers and physicians from UCSF, NYU, Cleveland Clinic, MAPS, who does the MDMA clinical trials, and Houston Methodist, yep. the largest ever clinical study in 70 years of psychedelic therapy and 20 years of ketamine therapy history, demonstrating that this program is literally the best treatment for anxiety and depression that's ever existed. That's unbelievable. So can you dig a little bit more into the findings from the research? What makes you say that it's the, the best for anxiety and depression in history? So zooming out, I started Mindbloom, which is my third company for two big reasons. One is that mental health care is largely considered the number one public health crisis in the US today. So to put the problem into perspective, nearly a quarter of Americans have a diagnosable mental illness in the United States. We've seen suicide and overdoses become the top two causes of death for adults under the age of 45. And the problem is just getting worse for a couple of reasons. One is that a lot of Americans, like I mentioned, don't even have access to treatment. About 160 million Americans don't have access to providers. There's massive stigma and mental illness, and it's very expensive. Psychiatry is the least insured specialty of all medical specialties. The other reason, the more insidious reason that we're losing the fight to the mental health crisis 
is that existing treatment options or legacy treatment options just really don't work for most people. So SSRIs like Lexapro and Prozac, what we think of as antidepressants, are effective for about 40 to 45% of people. So less than half. They take six day weeks to work and like 40 to 50% of people have severe side effects from them they can't tolerate. Weight gain, sexual dysfunction, insomnia, severe anxiety, sometimes suicidality. And the clinical outcomes from talk therapy are even worse than that. Ketamine therapy over the last 20 years has quickly become one of the most promising, exciting treatments in behavioral health because the clinical outcomes are just better. So there have been over 100 clinical studies published on ketamine therapy and in-person ketamine therapy, which is um, before MindBloom took a lot of protocols that other providers were using and brought them into the mainstream, the predominant form of treatment would work for about 54% of patients versus 40% for SSRIs. By using at-home ketamine therapy and combining it into the psychedelic therapy modality, we have gotten people a clinically significant response rate 63% of the time. So that's 40% wow. more frequently than SSRIs, but it also works immediately versus six to eight weeks for a given SSRI and 10x fewer patients have side effects from ketamine therapy than they do from SSRIs. I was going to ask next about the trade-off of tele telemedicine obviously seems like a better business model and you don't have to spend the money on locations and all of that, but you're saying that actually the telemedicine approach, the way that you're doing it beats in-person ketamine therapy as well. That's right. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. So the first reason is that when I started Mindbloom, I became a ketamine therapy patient myself, and it was incredibly transformational. Just as transformational as a lot of different psychedelic therapies that I'd used personally over the past 16 years, but it was extremely expensive, hard to access. You have to have someone take you to a clinic, sit with you for a couple hours and take you back every single time. Yeah. That experience isn't great because what you do before a psychedelic therapy experience during and after dramatically affects the quality and the outcomes and traveling to a clinic, sitting in an unfamiliar medical clinic, traveling back from a clinic is not very conducive to your mindset going in, your ability to process afterwards and the physical setting is often uncomfortable and foreign. In addition, ketamine therapy 1.0 was generally just an injection of ketamine, often delivered by an anesthesiologist or ER doctor, not even a mental health care provider, and then you're sent on your way. Still had these incredible outcomes, but we saw an opportunity to create a more comprehensive and complete psychedelic therapy solution that didn't just give you the medication, but gave you specialized coaching to help you prepare for each experience, get the most out of each experience with custom and developed audio and programs and guidance, and help you integrate each experience, both directly afterwards and between each session. Uh, in addition, I think a lot of people here at home and they think maybe that would lead to worse outcomes, but because with psychedelic medicine, your mindset going in the physical setting yeah. that you do it in is really important. Doing it at home allows you to prepare a calm, expansive mindset, allows you to be in a safe, comfortable setting, and allows you that time immediately after to actually journal and integrate and process the experience and relax from it versus being shuttled around to and from a medical clinic. So I think those are a few of the reasons that despite telemedicine feeling like it would be cutting corners, it actually enables for psychedelic therapy, I think a superior experience, which has shown up in the largest clinical study in psychedelic therapy history. It was it's amazing. And of almost 1300. Yeah. Amazing when it works out like that, the, the thing that's better for the business is also better for the patient, which means the business can get bigger and reach more people and, and all those types of things. 
I've looked into psilocybin treatment a bunch. And one of the things that from a business model perspective seems tricky, like SSRI is a benefit if you're a pharmaceutical company is that you have a customer for life. When, once they're on there, psilocybin can work in a couple of sessions and you're done and you're fixed. On that spectrum, where does ketamine fall in? And if it is a fix more than a lifelong thing, what do you do from the business model perspective there? Yeah. So first and foremost, there's currently a dearth of clinical data, both lab data and real world evidence or clinical data on the durability of effects. We're actually right now running a clinical study that'll be like 8x larger than our last clinical study. So we'll have an end of almost 10,000 patients uh, trying to look at the durability of effects, not just how do people's behavioral health conditions improve immediately after treatments, but in the months and years after it. I think we could only be so lucky to solve the number one public health crisis eternally. I think the reality is that mental health is very dynamic. People have different issues that come up for them throughout their life. And so they'll dip in and out of different mental health states. Uh, for example, one of the big reasons I started Mind Bloom is because that mental health crisis we talked about earlier is really personal and meaningful to me because I grew up in a family that was obliterated by the mental health crisis. My mother and my sister were both severely mentally ill, schizophrenic, bipolar, addiction, we tried all the traditional treatments for them, SSRIs, anti-anxiety meds, antipsychotics, talk therapy, group therapy, inpatient rehab. And unfortunately, none of those traditional treatments worked for either of them. My mother spent 15 years homeless before dying of a fentanyl overdose a couple of years ago. And my sister died of a fentanyl overdose about six months ago right after getting out of rehab. I'm sorry. Thanks. I appreciate saying that. It was very challenging. And one of the big reasons our mission and Mind Bloom is to transform lives, to transform the world, is that I saw through that experience myself and some of the traumatic experiences I experienced growing up in a very turbulent household, that mental illness doesn't just affect the individual who's suffering, which it does, it's tragic for them, but has these ripple effects, their friends, family, community, and the work that they can't do in the world. But on a more positive note, after my sister passed away, my father, who was already depressed, was cast into a suicidal depression because of his grief from it. And we were able to get him on Mindbloom's treatment programs, and he's done a few now, and he's like absolutely transformed, full remission from not just suicidality, but depression. He sounds 30 years younger. He's exercising, meditating, which if you knew him would be stunning. <laughs> he's, a, he's, a, he's a working class guy, mailman, city bus driver. And, and I think we just see that people have all these different things that come up during their life. They have traumatic events with Divorce happens a lot with our clients. Heartbreak is a common theme. Grief is a common theme. Loneliness or aging, social anxiety. During COVID, we saw 20% of Americans are clinical hypochondriacs. You have a pandemic, massive mental health issues there. OCD, PTSD, different substance issues, even things like smoking or nicotine can be like persistent yeah. behavioral disorders for people. So I think even if we are able to get people like durability for any given issue that they're facing with a neuroplastic drug, whether that's ketamine or psilocybin or LSD or MDMA, there'll still be issues that come up for people. But hopefully we can live in a world where companies like Mindbloom and providers can all put themselves out of business because we come up with a panacea for anguish and can move on to higher order problems for human flourishing. <laughs> for sure. I want to get back to that part because I think there's probably, if everybody's cured 
awesome and then still probably a ton of great uses for all of those treatments. But what does a program look like today? Let's say I'm, I think that I might be a candidate. I go to the MindBloom's website. Take me from day one through all the way. So MindBloom is a six session treatment program. You meet with a psychiatric clinician, just like you would in person if you're being a psychiatrist, but through Zoom. Uh, I think a lot of people when they hear telemedicine, ketamine therapy, they think it might feel a little bit like drive-through medicine <laughs> where you text a doc and get a script. But whereas some direct-to-consumer companies look more like online pharmacies where you might text a doctor for seven minutes to get a treatment and that's appropriate for those treatments and treatment plans. And MindBloom patients are spending on average seven plus hours with their care team throughout that succession treatment program. So that's a couple hours of psychiatric consultation and medication management and titration up to the right dose with your psychiatric clinician. And then several hours of one-on-one -on -one messaging and group integration therapy with your coach or your psychedelic guide that you're connecting to through the platform. In addition, we have a mobile app that's Headspace or Calm, but for psychedelic therapy with an entire suite of different content and programs and services to help people prepare for, go through and integrate their experiences. The sessions themselves are taken sublingually. So it's a little flavored tablet that you dissolve under your tongue and in your cheeks. The experience itself lasts about one hour. And during that one hour, patients have on an eye shade and headphones, or they're able to select from a library of different guided programs and tracks that take them through with different types of music, spoken word to simulate what it would be like doing a guided experience in person remotely. That's very cool. And for those in the audience, myself included, actually have not, not done ketamine before. What's the trip like? How would you compare it if people have done psilocybin or something like, how would you put it on the spectrum of kind of different experiences? That's the classic describe an indescribable experience question. Yeah. <laughs> so I, th I think the way you framed it's really good way. If you've done a serotonergenic psychedelic therapy, psychedelic medicine, like psilocybin or LSD or even ayahuasca, I think the way to think about that is that it really enhances a lot of your senses to the point of distortion in the foreground where you have hallucinations that are visual, they're auditory, that you're even like olfactory and obviously cognitively and emotionally. Ketamine therapy works on a different set of neurotransmitters, your glutamate system, and it's much more in the background. So for a lot of people, it can feel very trance or dreamlike. The visualizations that people have are a lot less crisp, but they can often feel like memories coming up or dreams coming up. Oftentimes people have a very warm, positive, emotional uplifting that can feel a little like MDMA, not nearly as empathogenic or euphoric, but it can definitely, for a lot of people, they can feel this positive, creative sense of calm and well-being that if you're someone who's suffered for anxiety or depression for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, might be the first time that you felt that way in that time period. In addition, people have a lot of different creative thinking that comes up during the experience, a lot of different cognitive insights. So ketamine, similar to psilocybin and LSD, is shown to cause the brain to secrete BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is like HGH for the brain or fertilizer for the brain. And so functionally, what that feels like for people is a sense of sort of creativity and insight 
And oftentimes if they're doing it in a psychedelic therapy modality where they came in having written intentions, prime their subconscious and are exploring for them what changes they want to make in their life or what's holding them back, those cognitive insights are into them and how they want to or need to change to accomplish their emotional or psychological objectives. That neuroplastic state for people where they're more easily able to create connections in the brain and rewire their neural pathways and really their behavioral and emotional patterns is also shown to persist for three to 14 days afterwards. So even after the experience, the medicine is still working for people where they're a lot more easily able to change their behavior and get more insights and really solidify changes in ways of feeling and being. And that's why it's this six session program that sort of compounds on itself as people do it over the one to two months. And I know it might be tough to answer some questions because you're not a doctor and you have a company to run, but would it be better if these sessions just lasted forever? If I came in not depressed or, or feeling anxiety, but just wanted to get more creative, I'm stuck writing or I want to take Dabor into the next level. Could I just be on a program for the rest of my life and let neuroplasticity and creativity persist or like what changes over time? Yeah. So I putting on my personal psychedelic medicine enthusiast hat, clearly subjectively people report a sense of improved well-being, like lateral thinking, creativity, cognitive insight that drives towards enhanced state of mental well-being and just like wellness. And so I, I think as the medical system, I think we're undergoing a transformation evolution from what I think of as old medicine versus new medicine. And so old medicine is like very reactive. It's very focused on treating the symptoms of disease states and it's very paternalistic and top down. You go to a doctor, they tell you what to do. New medicine, on the other hand, is very proactive. It's very personalized. It's not focused on just necessarily disease states as it is in getting you to the optimal state of physical, emotional, and mental well-being. And it's a little bit more peer-based. So it gives patients more autonomy and responsibility to take charge of their own health and use providers as trusted advisors. Today, we're undergoing that shift in the medical system. I think we have a long ways to go. Yeah. And so where ketamine therapy is today is, is it can only be prescribed for clinical indications of anxiety, depression, chronic pain, other mood disorders. And so today, if you came to Mindbloom and you said, I'm just looking to enhance creativity or explore my consciousness, you would not be eligible for treatment. But if you have symptoms of anxiety, depression, many people in modernity have symptoms of anxiety, but they think it's normal, actually. It's normalized, right? I don't sleep that well. I'm restless. I'm fixated on the future. I'm normal. <laughs> that's can what, you I'm, fix my sleep? If you can fix my sleep, I would be, I'd be forever grateful. Do you have onset insomnia or maintenance insomnia? I don't know the difference between those terms, but I just- Trouble falling asleep or staying asleep? It's really waking up to pee, I think, at three in the morning, four in the morning, and then not being able to get back to sleep. That's the tough part. Have you tried just a catheter? (laughs) I have not tried a catheter. I should try a catheter. Ketamine sounds a lot less painful than a catheter, though. (laughs) What's your caffeine? consumption look like. I grappled with maintenance insomnia for years. And it wasn't until I made the really challenging commitment, which took a long time and a lot of false starts, to titrate my caffeine intake down like 70%. Mm. And then I also started watching television before bed, which interestingly enough, people would say is would be bad for your sleep, deleterious to your sleep. 
I found that even if I read, it tends to activate my mind. But if I'm watching television, then I'm completely vegging out. And so those two have improved my sleep like 80% over the past two years. It's been pretty life-changing for me. Yeah, I would say probably. And I hate watching TV. It feels like a waste of time. (laughs) 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 But it's where, yeah, if you feel better the whole next day, it's worth it. I would say probably the caffeine is the main culprit, probably in three cups of cometeer and maybe sometimes a lunchtime Celsius. I like feel good about it because I cut myself off at lunchtime, but that's probably the culprit. Yeah, I found, are you, have you done genetic testing to discern whether or not you're a fast or slow metabolizer? I have not. So I think if you've even done 23andMe, you can check the SNP. If you go into your raw genetic code, you can use like self-decode, I think it's called, to, to look this up. To see if you're a fast or slow metabolizer. Uh, for me, I came to terms that I'm a slow metabolizer. And so even if I had all my caffeine early in the day, given the half-life, you still have in your system like the next day. And so yeah. if you're metabolizing it slowly, like you still have caffeine in your system. And so I think it was just ramping up my sympathetic nervous system. And it wasn't until I stopped jacking myself up with stimulants to be productive all the time that I started sleeping better. It was a, yeah. yeah. It, may, it makes sense. It's a switching back. You don't describe MindBloom as a ketamine company. It's a psychedelic medicine company. What's the roadmap from where you are today to like what the world looks like in the next five years, decade? Like how do more treatments come on, broader uses? What, when you look at all of that, what do you see and what needs to happen? So today we have essentially one SKU for two customer segments. We do at-home sublingual ketamine therapy with our whole complete solution for patients with anxiety and or depression. Looking at the roadmap, if I had to break it apart into a few different milestones, I would say over the next 18 months, we have two big initiatives. One is what I call vertical expansion. So taking our one SKU, at-home sublingual ketamine therapy, and expanding into about a dozen other mental health care patient populations. So these are both mental health care indications and also just mental health issues. Alcohol use disorder, grief, smoking cessation, OCD, PTSD, behavioral change around some big things that affect people's health, like weight loss and exercise, social anxiety, loneliness, heartbreak. These are all, whether or not they're a clinical indication or just a mental health issue, key drivers of people's mental health and things that there are for a lot of these, a lot of clinical research that's ketamine therapy can really help for people. The second one over the next 18 months is our research uncovered that around 75% of behavioral health patients will only consider a treatment that they learn about from a medical provider. So if we want to propel ketamine therapy and then other psychedelic therapies into the mainstream and really make it a big three treatment alongside talk therapy and traditional medications, which it should be when you look at the clinical outcomes, it should be number one, really then we're going to need to not just get patients to adopt and consider it, but also to get providers to adopt and consider it. So one of the things we're doing on the back of this clinical study that we published last summer is we've begun partnering with providers who've been asking us to help them add on ketamine therapy to their practice because it's the most exciting treatment in behavioral health today, whereby they're able to add on telemedicine prescribing of ketamine therapy. We wrap around them. So it's not our affiliated providers prescribing it, just the provider you'd work with, but they'd work with our coaches, our program, our platform, our pharmacy partners. But that's just ketamine therapy. 
And there's a reason it's called Mind Bloom and not Ketabloom. <laughs> and that's because ketamine therapy is just the first legally prescribable psychedelic therapy in the US today. It wouldn't even be the one I would start with, or I think our clinical leaders would start with if all of them were available. MDMA therapy just completed fairly recently the last part of clinical trials and is preparing for a new drug approval by the FDA. And so we anticipate probably close to the end of next year, beginning to provide MDMA-assisted therapy to patients as well. Psilocybin-assisted therapy just began phase three clinical trials. And so that'll probably be a couple of years after that. And then there's an entire pipeline of other neuroplastic drugs, things like LSD, mescaline, 2CB, ayahuasca, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT that are also coming down the pipeline for a variety of mental health care issues and addiction treatments. From there, I still think that even these neuroplastic drugs are just the beginning of new technologies to help us improve our brain health and change our behavioral patterns. And so I think any technology that's developed, we will want to help either increase access to it and or help people get the best outcomes possible for it as a care delivery platform. And that could include non-psychedelic medicines. For instance, just the other day, there was a peer-reviewed study published in, I believe it was science, around molecules that are being developed to essentially do that BDNF action that we talked about earlier, brain-derived yeah. neurotrophic factor, without the hallucinogenic effect. So this would essentially create a state of neuroplasticity in your brain that you get from things like high-intensity interval training exercise, just a smidge of it, or fasting. Psychedelics do something like 10x what antidepressants do in terms of BDNF, or no, sorry, 10,000x what SSRIs oh. do in terms of BDNF. But if we could subtract the hallucinogenic effect and even some like neurotoxicity of things you get from MDMA, you could have a true limitless drug on your hand that enhances creativity and orthogonal thinking and help people reshape their neural pathways in healthier ways. I was going to ask, that was one of my next questions about the importance of the hallucinogenic effects. Are there some things where it's actually super useful to hallucinate and others where cutting that out is better? Is it just a matter of the fact that more people are going to take something that doesn't make them hallucinate? What's that spectrum look like? I mean, there certainly seems to be something around the depth of hallucination or ketamine dissociation. We've seen the data is correlated to clinical outcomes. So people who go deeper in a way that's safe and effective to tend to get better outcomes. We've also though seen people who don't even get to a dissociative state can still have those, have great clinical outcomes and argue that because of the BDNF action that's occurring. So oftentimes clients will be underwhelmed by their first couple sessions because our Clinicians start people to really low dose and titrate them up over multiple sessions to get them to the ideal range for them. So oftentimes patients are disappointed over the first couple of sessions, but then still report feeling these incredible antidepressant effects in the days after. And that's likely because of the BDNF action that's occurring. It'll also be interesting to see if you separate, can separate the hallucinogenic effect from some of the cognitive insights. Potentially, it will be possible to get people into the state of enhanced neuroplasticity and creativity but without the hallucinogenic effects. If you've experienced psychedelics before, you probably have experienced that sense of, I believe it's called transient hypofrontality, or where your prefrontal cortex shuts down, which causes your brain to essentially 
fire in new and different ways because this sort of default mode network of how your brain runs in the background usually is dimmed and shut down. So your brain has to find new pathways. Uh, so that can feel the, like the images are of the brain with and without are amazing. The new, the new pathways being connected. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting sort of subjective experiences when your prefrontal cortex shuts down like that is you feel simultaneously very stupid and very intelligent. Your linear <laughs> thinking is atrophied. So basic arithmetic, figuring out what time it is, sequencing a list of priorities and executive sort of functioning or agency is significantly atrophied. But at the same time, your lateral thinking is greatly improved. So you're able yeah. to make these connections that you weren't currently able to make. You have this sense of extreme creativity, despite the fact that it can be like challenging to figure out how to tie your shoes. I may or may not have done a little LSD at a friend's bachelor party at Fish a couple of years ago. And it was like something that I had not done forever because I read this book, Yolanda's Dream, when I was in like eighth grade or something. And the brother in the book had acid flashbacks. So I was like, no, I'll, I can do psilocybin, but I won't do LSD. Finally did it. It was one, in incredible. And two, it's like the most relevant and like the thing that I remember the most clearly is like the sense that I had just like a happiness style in my brain that I was able to like physically turn up or down. And that even the next day, week, whatever, I was like, oh, if I could think that in that state, let me just uh, turn my happiness style up right now, like totally within my control. And it works. So today, maybe I could get, meditate myself back into a state where I can trick myself into thinking that, but that was amazing to me, like how long it persisted, this feeling that I could turn it up and down. I also celebrated my bachelor party on bicycle day, which is like the day, it's April 19th. It's the day that commemorates the day that the very first acid trip, which was done by Albert Hoffman, who synthesized it, was done on his bicycle as he rode back from the lab. So amazing. celebrated similar style on, on bicycle day. On the topic of acid flashbacks, have you ever had an acid flashback? No. I don't know if they're real or not. They might be apocryphal. <laughs> Our general counsel came from corporate law. And his uh, boss, who's like the head of the litigation group that he worked at, was like, aren't you worried about having an acid flashback when you're standing up in front of a judge litigating a case? He was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Dude, it, it did its job, though, from, I guess, eighth grade until the time that I was like 32. It kept me away from acid. So the propaganda worked on me. Yeah, I think they really need to rebrand LSD. Acid was a horrendous name. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> really tough name moving away from the clinical a little bit like i've not formed the thesis well enough to write it down yet but it feels like there is going to be this huge movement and it's already underway but towards enhancing our brains and like getting our brains to work better i think like one just as a pushback to ai and like all the basic stuff that we're that we're able to do gets taken more and more i just i have a sense that we're going to move into a world where people just want to explore the limits of their own brains. 10, 20, whatever years it is in the future where things are more available. What do you think those regimens look like for people? Like, how do you think mind bloom plays a role? I don't know, paint the future because it's something that I thought about a little bit and I'm sure just by the nature of your job, you've thought about a little bit more. Yeah, I think if you go as, as far into the future as necessary on a long enough time scale, whether it's through molecular engineering of molecules like psychedelic medicines or the neuroplastics, nanotechnology, cybernetics, like brain machine interfaces, genetic engineering, 
we should be able to control our physiology and understand our physiology enough to like completely dictate how our bodies work. And so on a line of time scale, like we should be able to decide intentionally whether you not want to or not to eliminate any negative feeling. Like we already have made massive progress on physical pain, right? Yeah. Yeah. We still have physical pain. Back, back pain is definitely an epidemic with every sitting and having poor posture and mobility and a variety of other reasons. But in general, you have a headache, you just got to get rid of it. That's pretty stunning and very new. Not to mention things like general anesthesia. Like it used to be if yeah. you had to take your tooth out, that was going to be a traumatic event. And now they just knock you out, numb you up, take it out, and you're fine. And I think on a long enough time scale, we're going to have the same emotional pain. You'll be able to turn the knobs up and down and really experience whatever sort of valence of your qualia or like the individual atomic units of sensation that you have to your control. How that happens or what timeline that's on, I'm not sure. But if you took Mind Bloom to the extreme, would see it evolving from an organization that's not just about reducing human suffering, but about our mission statement to transform lives, to transform the world, and really to help fundamentally upgrade the human operating system so that people can be the happiest, healthiest, strongest versions themselves for them, but for really what they'll go on to create for the world around them. It makes me just think of, I don't know if it's an accident of history, alcohol has been around for a while, but psychedelics have been around for a very long time too. Like what the path of the world looks like if everybody had just done psychedelics instead of drinking. Like what do you see like in that future world that you're talking about? Just based on even just the clinical research on how people behave on psychedelics now, like what do you think the big changes are if it becomes just a more kind of integrated part of human society? So there are two directions. One is just on the topic of alcohol. It's truly fascinating how much sticking power it's had. Like, totally. obviously, it's an incredibly primitive molecule. It has a lot of valuable qualities, right? Like, it increases sociability. It obviously pairs really well with like celebrations and festivities, which are deeply embedded into the human nature and the human social fabric as we celebrate things. And that can lead to things like commingling of meeting people, which leads to more genetic variation through like procreation. There are probably reasons for these things. But we have like much better molecules now. (laughs) Alcohol is incredibly addictive, incredibly toxic. Honestly, it feels awful the next day. And it's just fascinating how ingrained it is and how something like alcohol, which if you look at a drug harm scales for like harm to self and harm to others, it's like after heroin, which is incredibly deadly, alcohol is the most harmful drug, especially because the harm to others is so high. Something like one third of motor vehicle accident fatalities, which is the leading cause of death, are caused directly or indirectly by alcohol. And that's not to talk about the domestic violence and yeah. you know, lost productivity, et cetera. But I think a lot of psychedelics are used for very different things. And I think to your point, as we increasingly move up the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs to things like self actualization, even like transcendence we're going to see people increasingly seeking out mechanisms to even putting aside sort of the spiritual benefits that you can get, whether that's more religious spirituality or just like awe and gratitude and those feelings, connection to others, the people around you. People are going to continue to be seeking out tools to help them become better versions of themselves, healthier versions of themselves, more effective, intelligent, productive versions of themselves. And these molecules will increasingly play a huge role in that. 
So I feel like it, feel, it feels like hyperbolic to say that the sort of proliferation and acceptance and eventually ubiquitousness of psychedelic medicines would be world changing, but it does. I do believe that it truly would be. <laughs> maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just like selling my book here, but I know it will sell your book. <laughs> yeah. I will sell your book for you. And this is, I haven't done psychedelics in a few years. This is not like a, it's like hard to, it's, they've done such a good job stigmatizing it that it's like hard to talk about while seeming like you're not, you're not too far out there, but I think we write a lot about and talk a lot about tech progress in a whole bunch of different areas and how like it's making lives better in a lot of different ways. And then people still feel less happy or unfulfilled, or there's a meaning crisis or there's whatever. And it feels like there's this whole other side that goes with that, where it's like, cool, let's go to the stars and manufacture drugs in space and have fusion energy and like also work on this half of things so that we appreciate all of that and aren't, aren't just feeling increasingly sad or disconnected or whatever that is on the other side. So I think it's like an incredibly important and underappreciated balance to the kind of progress on the rest of the world of tech. So I, yeah, I completely agree with you there. For you, the, you're right at the center of this. What are the next steps over the next few years to help destigmatize and spread the message and get it more into the mainstream and, and something that, that more people do? What, one of the things we've found which inherently make a lot of sense is that one of the biggest drivers for people deciding to try ketamine or other psychedelic therapies is hearing about it from a really trusted source, usually someone they know personally who has tried it and had success and had a similar story as them. Makes sense, right? Usually if you talk to someone, ask them like, why did you try psychedelic medicine or why did you go to Burning Man <laughs> or some sort of other big leap transformational thing that seems really different or stigmatized and new, it's because someone they knew and trusted told them, you, you should do this, I did it. Um, and you know, here's what my story looked like. So like for me, part of my journey was, it took a while for me to get really comfortable as somebody who built two previous tech companies, one that was acquired and one that's raised several hundred million dollars to speak publicly about this. I was comfortable speaking privately about psychedelics for a long time and evangelizing them to hundreds of people. But am I going to go on the Not Boring podcast and talk about doing psychedelics? It's scary. But seeing other people raise their hands, people like Michael Pollan and Tim Ferriss, who had a lot more to lose than I do, raise their hand and talk about their experiences was hugely impactful and probably one of the things that pushed me over the edge to be willing to do it publicly. And so one of the things we have been doing is working to really empower our patients, many of which are massive evangelists and want to share this with other people to do. So for example, we launched a patient community on Facebook like six months ago that already has like over a thousand patients with several hundred people posting a day. We literally just launched this literally six months ago on Facebook and just popped it up. And it's been Incredible. pretty stunning. Yeah, they wrote like several hundred letters to Congress as Congress and the DA were considering new legislation around telemedicine prescribing of drugs. But when there's a post by a news outlet that might be not incredibly intellectually honest about ketamine or psychedelic medicine, the community will go and bombard it with their stories of their experiences going through ketamine therapy and what it's done for them. And so I think one of the things that's going to propel this into the mainstream and make it a big treatment is just going to be not just time, but really empowering the patients and the providers who are treating the patients 
to share those stories of what they were grappling with. A lot of them were really serious mental health issues. They dealt with for five, 10, 20 years. Like our average client's 41 years old. We have more clients yeah. over the age of 57 than 20. So people have really suffered for a long I time. I believe that. Yeah. 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 And how they've gone through it, what they got out of it and where they are now to really help normalize this as a legitimate treatment because it's still just like 0.2% of the psychiatric drug market based on our estimates. I appreciate you coming on and, and telling your story here. I guess I just outed myself, although I think I've done it in the newsletter before as well. But where- One of know, us. People- <laughs> one of us. If people are listening to this and think that treatment might make sense for them, like where can they find you? Where can they find more? And where can they find Mindbloom? You can find Mindbloom at mindbloom.com. We have a ton of resources to learn about ketamine therapy, the science, the safety, the efficacy, a lot of clinical research, as well as a lot of information about how it works, which is really new to people because it's not just a drug you get prescribed, but an entire psychedelic therapy treatment paradigm is new to patients and providers. And you could follow me on LinkedIn. So I'm, I publish a lot LinkedIn about- LinkedIn guy. Yeah. I, part of my mental health routine, which maybe I can get away with as a mental health CEO, is that I'm not on other social media. <laughs> smart. Very smart. Dylan, it was incredible having you on. Big fan of what you're doing and rooting for your success. So thanks for telling your story. Yeah, thanks, Packy. This was a blast. Love jamming with you. It's not boring. This story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that shadows on the yeah, yeah. It's not boring. Not boring is for the optimist. Take a little shot of optimism. Take a little shot of optimism. Let's just zoom out and take a little shot of optimism.